got your Bibles, we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. And again, what, what an incredible passage of Scripture. I, I'm believing God's going to really minister to your heart through it today. But I also know that we've got people that have just been joining us. So if I could just walk you back through uh, kind of the flow of the book of Hebrews to where we are today. So one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ, that he is far greater than anything that the Old Testament had to offer. Because you remember, really the book is written to people who came out of Judaism, who came to believe that Jesus was the Christ, they accepted him, and they're walking by faith, but now they're facing persecution, both from the Romans and from the other Jews who are still under the law. And so there's a tendency, a desire on parts of them to kind of pull back and the book is written to encourage them. No, there's, there's, there's nothing in the old that is better than what's in the new. And so he starts in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, that Jesus is a far better revelation of God. You have the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament prophets, that's great. But Jesus is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the one who is the heir of all things. And then from there, that Jesus is far better than the angels. Angels held a very prominent place in Judaism. They were seen as those that brought the law, who brought prophecy to the, to the Old Testament prophets. But Jesus is far greater than them. In the middle of it, you get the first warning passage. So there in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. And the warning is this. Don't drift. Don't fall back. Don't, don't turn to the left or the right. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and his promise of what's going to come, right? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Looking ahead. In fact, he says two verses later, we're talking of things to come. That we get to go be with Jesus and there's great reward... For those who have walked faithfully. Then we got to, uh, he, he went back to angels and, and was wrapping that up. Chapter 3, you got the, uh, the idea that Jesus is greater than Moses, right? And if you were here, you'll remember that Moses, I mean, he's the man. It's through him that the law came, the exodus and all of that. But Jesus is far greater than Moses. Moses was a servant. Jesus is a son. Then he rolls into that second warning passage that we've been talking about. The whole idea is to hold fast. Don't turn away. Don't shrink back. Because when you and I faithfully follow Jesus, we can enter that rest, that inheritance, that reward. We're not talking heaven. That's promised to every Christian. But this inheritance of faithfulness. And the picture that he gives is the children of Israel are brought up out of Egypt... And God has an inheritance for them. It's in the promised land. But when they got ready to go in, they turned back in disbelief. And he says, don't do that. There is great reward for following after Jesus with a whole heart. And that kind of what leads us now to where we are. In fact, let's read verse 11. I was going to start in verse 12, but let's read verse 11 just to kind of give the context here. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So looking ahead to the inheritance so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confidence and our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So he's talking about this idea of walk faithfully, be diligent. And he introduces and reminds us of the importance of the word of God in all of this. Now, when you and I talk about the word of God, it's easy for us maybe to run ahead and think, well, he's thinking of Jesus because Jesus is the living word. And I'm certainly certain that he had that in mind. We also think of the Word of God, we think of the Bible, right? The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Word of God that was, was delivered. And obviously he has that in mind. But I think there's another component to this. When he talks about that the Word of God is living and it's active. The Word of God, we see it both in Jesus, we see it through what is written, but we also hear it and experience it. As it is preached, as it is ministered. I mean, we just sang the song, he turns graves into garden, right? Looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he turns bones into armies. Ezekiel 37, right? The great restoration that God is doing of Israel. He turns seas into highways. The picture of the children of Israel going through the Red Sea. And it ministers to our heart. Paul put it like this in Philippians 1. Remember, he's in jail. He can't be out preaching. He says, and most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear, right? So they're out preaching, and their word as they communicate truth is the word of God out ministering. It's living. It's active. We see it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank you that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. So Paul and Silas showed up. We're just there three weeks, but they're preaching the word. They're telling people about Jesus. They accepted it as the word of God. And his whole point here is is that, yes, we have Jesus. We have his word. We have the preaching of the gospel. We have pastors who stand up and and preach the word. You speak truth. We sing songs that that are, you know, reflecting to us the word of God. And it ministers to our hearts. And now he tells us four things about this word. The first thing is, is that it is living. And by living, it means that it is truth for today. It never gets old. It never goes out of style. It never loses its ability to speak to our hearts. Have you ever had a book maybe you read years ago that really was, wow, was one of those, you know, light bulb moments that was great. And years later, you go back and you read it and you go, man, this, this book is really dated. 
That ever happened to you? In fact, Mark and I, we, uh, we do a uh, discipleship group with some, some guys every year. and we, It's kind of the book of the month club is what it is. And uh, the one book that we have that, uh, that we, it, in fact, probably the best book I've ever read, highly recommend it, on leading your family as a man, of uh, loving your wife well, your children well. It's called Point Man by Steve Farrar. And, uh, and we've, we've been doing this book for, what, 13, 14 years, right? But his Point Man goes back to when he was in the military back in Vietnam. And it's kind of funny. A lot of us go, okay, yeah, right. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that are reading it now in their 30s, it goes, what is this all about, right? It's, it's old. All the stories are old. Well, the Word of God doesn't ever get old. The Word of God speaks to people from generation to generation, no matter where they live, what culture they grew up in. In fact, you think about how that's played out. He's been, he's been talking Psalm 95, right? So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And Psalm 95 actually takes the stories of numbers. So 400 years later, write this story that was written in God's word by Moses of the children of Israel trying to go into their inheritance, but they turn back in disbelief. 400 years later, David takes it and applies it to his generation. Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like back then. And then a thousand years pass, David doing that, the writer of Hebrews picks it up and says, today. Right? Because it still applies today. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and this is what you and I are talking about. Today, don't harden your heart. Follow after walk in faith. Now, that's the beauty of what the Word of God is. You know, we talked last week. How many correct interpretations are there? There's one. How many applications? Man, there's a zillion. The Word of God is living. It never gets old. The second thing he says is that it's, it's active. The word active is actually the Greek word from which we get the word energy. It's powerful. It, 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 it does stuff, man. It moves the needle. Couldn't help but think of what Isaiah tells us about the word of God. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread for the eater, which I'm thankful because I'm the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner that I've sent it. The word of God is powerful. It speaks, it moves. I mean, you think of what Paul said in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's, folks, this is why it is so important that we're in the word, that we're studying the word, that we're, we're meditating on the word, that we're memorizing the word. Why? Because it's living. It speaks to our lives today. It gives us wisdom for today. It gives us strength for today. It's powerful. It's speaks to our heart. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, the word of God is profitable 
for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. The word of God is powerful. It's what it does. Then he says this. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and, and intentions of heart. The, the picture here is that the word of God is sharp. It's a sword. You think of what Paul told us in Ephesians 6, right? The armor of God and take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But the sword is not something long. That's not the picture here. It, it was a little sword. It was, it was a short usually probably about eight inches, and it was sharpened on both sides. And, and yes, it could be used in hand-to-hand combat, but primarily it was used kind of utility, right? You needed to cut something. It was right there. And, and the point was is it didn't make a bigger mess, right? you got a big old sword. It, it's going to make a mess. This is, this is kind of for precision. You know, you think of a weapon, Right? If God wanted to get our attention, God doesn't use a baseball bat. Now, a baseball bat can get your attention. Right? You get hit in the head or the chest with a baseball bat, you're going to have your attention. The problem is, is that it's going to bruise a boatload of stuff, right? It's going to create lots of problems, but not the Word of God. The Word of God is sharper. It's for incision. It's for that fine. In fact, I almost wonder if today, if the writer of Hebrews was writing this, he would say the Word of God is like a scalpel. Precise. Going in to cut out what is, what is hurting and, and what is cancerous in your soul so that you can walk in wholeness. The fourth thing he says is that it pierces. The idea it penetrates the very core of who we, who we are. It, it penetrates our immaterial soul and spirit. It even penetrates us physically. You say, well, how does it penetrate us physically? Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where life was heavy? Maybe grief, maybe sadness, maybe even hopelessness. And your head's kind of down and your shoulders are hanging and then you come to God's word. Or maybe you hear that song on the radio that expresses God's word and it lifts that burden. And it takes that weight. And it's almost like the old t- picture of the Old Testament. He is the lifter of our head, right? It ministers to our heart. It even touches us physically. And to the point of, of even the division of, of our thoughts and our intents, the motives of our heart. You know, a lot of times I don't even spend time paying attention to that. But the Word of God, this is what it does. It penetrates to the deepest part of who we are. And then he comes to verse 13, which is kind of wrapping up this whole warning passage. And he says this, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, it's hard at points. What does it mean with him we have to do? I think the 
uh, ESV version actually has a better understanding of this. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Uh-oh. Remember what he's been talking about here. There's a rest. There's an inheritance. We're all going to give an account. His point here is, is that on that day when we stand and give an account, here's the word of God which is spoken truth. It's, it's really clear. It's black and white. There's not going to be, you know, when we stand on that day, there's not going to be fuzzy pictures. There's not going to be computer enhanced stuff, right? It's just all going to be really clean. Truth. I got to be honest with you. I'm at this point in my study and I'm going, ugh right? It's like, that's kind of heavy. We're going to give an account. So what is God looking for in this? Well, I don't have a lot of time, but I think you see in this passage, there's really three things on that day of do we, again, this is not about heaven. Everybody who knows Jesus go to heaven. This is about our reward. This is about inheritance. What is God looking for? I think there are three things. Number one, it's this idea of obedience. Did we live in obedience and alignment to God's word? This is what he told us. Did we walk? You know, so again, look at the picture of the children of Israel. I'm going to take you out of this land into a land of milk and honey. He brought them out. He delivered them. But now when they get there, they act in unbelief. So they did not get to go into the inheritance. Remember, everybody 20 years of age and older is going to die. We're going to wander around here for 40 years. Once you're all dead, I'll take the kids in. But you're going to miss your inheritance. So the question for you and I is, are we living in obedience, in alignment? For instance... One of the last things Jesus said while he was here on earth. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. Are we, okay? Are we living in alignment with that? Are we living our lives in a way where we're living Jesus and sharing Jesus? Couldn't help but think of, of this one. You know, in this, this crazy world that you and I live in today where... There's so much rabble-rousing, and there's so much, you know, you know, be out there and, you know, kind of shake up the neighborhood, right? Paul said, Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Are we living our lives in alignment with God's word? You think about the incredible amount of sexuality and sexual immorality in our culture the word of god says this is the will of god pretty clear even your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality are we living in alignment with god's word and i would remind you the greek word for sexual immorality there is pornea pornea Are we living in light and in alignment with God's word? How about in our relationships? Paul said in, in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So how, how are you doing? Are you living in alignment? Or somehow, is there bitterness in your heart? Are, 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 you, are, are you slandering people? Are you, are you forgiving? This is, this is the question. Are we living in alignment? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, which if you know Jesus, you have, Right? Well, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. How are we living life? That's the first question. The word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces. And we're all going to be laid naked before this. Of how did we live? Did we live in alignment? That's number one. Number two is what about our motives, right? So he talks about the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Was our motive in this life that we loved ourselves or that we loved Jesus? What's the number one command? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who did we live for? And on that day, again, we stand before, it's going to be clear. There's not going to be defense here. It's just going to be, this is what it was. Did we live our life for our love of God or for the love of ourselves? Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the love Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness thoughts and intents of our heart and will disclose the purposes yeah almost sounds like hebrews here doesn't it then god will then each will receive his commendation his reward i would suggest his inheritance from god our motive the third thing is this were we faithful were we faithful? You go on, you see this in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see it back in 11. Therefore, let us be diligent. Were we faithful? You know, every one of us has been given time, talent, and treasure. Are we faithful in our giving of those things, in, in stewarding them? That's the, you know, that's kind of the biblical term. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, stewards of the men. We've been given a stewardship. It doesn't belong to us. Our time, talent, treasure all belongs to God. We just have been given it as a stewardship. In this case, moreover, it is required to stewards that one be found Faithful, trustworthy. So this week, I'm sitting there going, man, ooh, pretty heavy, right? Because I'd sure like to think that, man, I've always, you know, lived in alignment with the Word of God, but the reality is, not perfect. Neither are you. And I sure like to think that, you know, I, I've tried to live my life for Jesus, but the reality is there's been a lot of Steve mixed into there from time to time, right? 
Because the word of God, which is living and active, has pointed that out periodically. I'd like to think that I've lived with faithfulness, but I know, I know, I've not always been faithful. Ah, that's the beauty of verses 12, 13, and 14 here. Or excuse me, 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, all that we've said, all of this coming out, in fact, what he's doing here is he's been talking about how Jesus is far greater. He's greater than Moses. And oh, by the way, in the, the idea that he's greater than Moses, he's introduced this, high, this idea that Jesus is a greater high priest. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, this is where he first introduced it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And now he introduces Moses. And Moses was faithful as a servant in his house. And we talked about what was his house was it all of israel probably not probably the idea is is that he was of the tribe of levi right aaron wasn't faithful miriam wasn't faithful the sons of of aaron weren't faithful moses was the one faithful representing god to us and now he gives the warning passage right and now he's moving back to how jesus is far greater even as a high priest and he gives this words of encouragement. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. He points us back to Jesus. Jesus is all you need. He's the reason we hold fast our confession. And remember what he tells us about Jesus here, right? He is not, he uses kind of a double negative here. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. His point is this. Jesus gets us. Jesus understands. You're tired. Jesus was tired. You're facing persecution. Jesus faced persecution. Your soul is struggling with all the injustice in the world. Jesus' soul struggled with all the injustice in the world. He's not unsympathetic. He touched this. In fact, to the point is that he was tempted, just like you and me. And I was thinking about that this week, and a couple of the commentators pointed out it. You know, when you look at the temptation of Jesus, it doesn't mean that every specific temptation, like I don't even know if they had donuts in Jesus' day, right? So I'm not, but it was like in in all the areas, right? So, so you go to that, that place of his temptation. And for 40 days, Jesus has fasted. No food. He's hungry. And Satan says, why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? The lust of the flesh. He's hungry. Then he takes them up on a high mountain and shows them all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them all to you, the lust of the eyes. Then he takes them to the temple and puts them on the high corner. He says, throw yourself down. Prove yourself to be the son of God, the pride of life. 
And what was fascinating, I'm not sure this has ever clicked with me before as much as it did this week. What's, what was fascinating is that each of those three temptations to Jesus were not for something that was necessarily wrong or outside the will of God. Okay? So take this stone and make it into bread. Was God against Jesus eating? No. He gave us hunger. Hunger is part of who we are, right? In fact, if you read the story, as soon as the temptation is over, angels showed up with food. The sin was fulfilling it outside of God's plan and God's will. Because remember when Jesus came, he emptied himself. And we talked about what does that mean? That he voluntarily laid aside his right to the power of him as deity so that he could actually become one of us, right? So everything he does, he does through the power of the Holy Spirit. What Satan is tempting him to is you're the son of God. You can turn it. Yes. But God's will was that he had humbled himself. Was it God's will that Jesus ultimately be the king of the universe? Absolutely. We've seen it in Hebrews. He, he is seated at the right hand of the throne on high, waiting for everything to be made his footstool. But the journey to that was not through worshiping Satan. The journey to that was through the cross. Prove yourself. Did God not want him to prove who he was? Yeah, he did. But it wasn't throwing himself off the corner of the temple. It was through rising from the dead. You know, in our lives, we have these temptations. And so often, they're not the temptation where we're even tempted to. The thing is not necessarily wrong. It's just how do we go about it? You know, you think about even us in our... And the lust of the flesh and our sexuality. Does God want us to, to be able to enjoy our sexuality? Yes, but how is that done? It's done in marriage. That's God's plan. And where we get into sin is we start walking outside of his plan for us. Does God want us to, to be able to, to live in, in freedom? Yes, but we, we do his freedom by becoming a servant. He is in all points tempted like us, yet without sin. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're facing. He knows you're not perfect. He knows it doesn't always align. He knows you fail. And so the God who, by the way, is the Son of God, right, is just such a beautiful passage. The Son of God, he sits on the throne, but his throne is a throne of grace. Not of power, not of authority, not of judgment, but it is a throne of grace for his children. And he tells us to come in with confidence, not wondering, are we really loved? No, with confidence. We know we're loved. Not with, will God really know what I'm going through? Yes, he knows. He's, he, he, he's touched with the feelings that we have. He's been touched with our, we could come with confidence. And we can come with confidence, quite honestly, to get mercy. When do you need mercy? Ah, uh, I need mercy when I've screwed up. I need mercy when I've dropped the ball. 
I need mercy when I failed. See, as the great high priest, he never tires of our new beginnings. He's always there if we are willing to turn back to him to extend mercy, to pick us up. And oh, by the way, grace to help in the time of of trial, the time of help, the time of need. So you're going through a hard time, yeah. He's got grace to give you strength. He's got grace to give you endurance. He's got grace to give you the wisdom that you need to to walk through this situation. He's the one who will uphold you. what What a beautiful passage. We don't have a high priest who's different from us, who sits up there with a haughty mind and says, I'm not like them. No, he became like us. He's touched our weaknesses. He's faced temptation. Yes, without sin, but he is faced. He understands. And now as our high priest, he sits on a throne of grace so that when we make those mistakes and we turn to him, there's always mercy. And in the midst of the difficulties... In the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the times where maybe we want to pull back, when we turn to him, man, there's encouragement, there's strength, there's power, there's wisdom, there's everything we need. Jesus is all we need. And if you've not come to put your faith in him, that's where it starts. It starts at salvation. Then it goes the rest of our life until that day we go and see him.